Welcome back. This is episode 8 of the Anglo-Boer War. I'm your host, Des Latham. It's just over a month since hostilities were declared formally on the 10th of October 1899. A number of battles have been fought that dispelled British notions of a quick and easy war. Thousands of casualties have been reported and there's some consternation in London. By this time, about a third of the 47,000 strong army corps which British commander General Redvers Buller would lead had arrived in Cape Town and some had been sent on to Durban to prepare to march and relieve Ladysmith. Buller had also decided on the 18th of November that his forces were now strong enough to begin moving north in the Cape and he ordered General Gattaca's 3rd Infantry Division to take back Nauport from where they had been withdrawn. It was an important town on the main railway line north. The unique feature of the Boers' warfare was clear to Buller, as it had been opaque to General White, who was besieged in the Natal town of Ladysmith. The Boers were virtually all mounted infantry. The war office back in London had not fully understood this, and as Buller had explained, the British marched to war on two feet, the Boers on six, four for the horse, two for the man. There were roughly the same number of firearms on both sides at this point. The big difference was mobility. Buller left for Natal from Cape Town on the 22nd of November, and there were some glad tidings from that province. Two of the three brigades, which had just arrived in South Africa and led by Commander Clary, around 8,000 men, were already in Estcourt and Moy River, just to the south of Ladysmith. They were the protection needed by Peter Maritzburg. On the western borders of the Cape Colony, Lord Methuen had moved north of Daar, crossed the Orange River, and was heading towards Kimberley. Gattaca's 3rd Division was holding Queenstown in the Eastern Cape, while the cavalry, led by the enigmatic French, was controlling the area around Colesburg. Things were apparently looking up for the British. But at this point, we need to talk a little about the bumptious Winston Churchill, who had muddied Buller's plan a tad. The son of British peer Lord Randolph Churchill was to make a grand entrance, and just as quickly a less-than-grand exit, as he was taken prisoner. The story of Churchill's capture is at once a comedy of errors and an example of his youthful courage, while at the same time his almost ironclad stupidity at this stage of his young life. Churchill, the journalist, was part of Cleary's brigade, as embedded reporters we call them today. He was an escort and heard that further north, near Colenso, the railway line was blocked on the route to Ladysmith. So he'd taken an armoured train, It was the epitome of 19th century progress, clad in medieval armour. The train itself, as Martin Bossenbroek writes in his book The Boer War, resembled a latter-day knight errant. Churchill was a war reporter writing for the Morning Post in England, and he had written that the train was really very vulnerable. If any bridges were blown behind or in front, it was over for those inside the metal carriages. So naturally he jumped aboard. There was no roof, no shutters, only loopholes, and it was defended by an old naval gun. The soldiers called it Wilson's Death Trap, which was to prove an apt description. Who Wilson was, we don't know. So on the 15th of November, Churchill made the fateful decision to climb aboard Wilson's Death Trap and head off towards Colenso. In his memoir, he writes, I was eager for trouble. He didn't have long to wait. The train left at dawn, carrying the Dublin Fusiliers, 
four sailors manning the naval gun, a team of mechanics, and Winston Churchill, war reporter extraordinaire. There were 150 men in total aboard the armoured train as it chugged through the dawn light. At 6.30, they arrived at Freer Station, where a Natal police patrol reported no Boers in sight. That's because the Boers had preferred not to be seen. There was a discussion aboard the train with the commander of the Fusiliers, Captain Aylmar Halden, eventually deciding to follow orders to the T, which were that he should try and reach Colenso. It's green rolling hills in that area of South Africa, quite beautiful. This seemed to lull the captain into a false sense of security. Bizarrely, they knew that Colenso had been ransacked already by the Boers, and there was nothing left. Even the tracks had been torn up. Earlier mounted patrols had established this, so what possessed the unit to continue trying to reach the town? The train was now approaching a small stop called Chivalry, south of Colenso, when Churchill spotted around 100 men on horseback galloping towards them, like something out of a Wild West movie. These were the men of Louis Butter's command under General Hubert. Still, they allowed the train to chug on to Chivalry, where Captain Halden telegraphed a hurried message about spotting a Boer commando in the area. Colonel Long, at escort, ordered Halden to return to Freer as quick as possible. So the engine reversed, and they were heading home at high speed. The truck carrying Churchill, Captain Halden, and the naval gun was now in the rear. A few kilometres further on, as they rounded a bend, they knew there was trouble. The Boers were waiting for them on a craggy ridge half a kilometre away. They wheeled out two cannon and a Maxim gun and fired on the train. All hell broke loose as Morza fire peppered the outside of the armoured carriage. As Churchill wrote later, he'd been fired on in Cuba, he'd faced men wielding sabres at Omdurman, but this was different. They were being pounded by rapid fire and shrapnel from hundreds of Morses, a Maxim machine gun, the so-called pom-pom, and two other cannon. Churchill was crouched down with the Dublin Fusiliers and Captain Holden as the engine driver tried to get more out of the locomotive full speed ahead. At that moment, the train hit the single large rock the Boers had placed on the line and crashed. This is where the story takes on somewhat of an unbelievable edge, but this is indeed exactly what happened according to all who saw it. And so I shall describe it for you. Churchill, a reporter, armed with a revolver, he told Captain Halden to get his Dubliners to lay down covering fire while Churchill ran alongside the tilted carriages to the engine to inspect the damage. Why he suddenly thought he should take command is typical of his character. He was a war reporter after all churning out daily reports. Now suddenly he turned into the leader of the small group. He was protected by the train as he ran. There he saw the engine and tender still on the line, but the three cars ahead of it had overturned on the embankment. Two others behind were badly damaged. They were carrying the Durban Light Infantry. After forcing the shell-shocked driver back into his compartment, Churchill then returned to Captain Halden and began to order the troops around. He had instinctively assumed command. Now, I know this may be hard to believe, but Churchill's background, after all, was in the military. They uncoupled the damaged cars, pushed them aside using the engine while the Boers kept up a barrage of bullets and shells. It was half an hour later that they managed to move the wreckage away, while men were wounded, falling, moaning. There were dozens of wounded who needed to be transported from the rear to the locomotive, for it was on the track and could possibly extricate the company from their disaster. The other carriages were all too badly damaged. 
So the wounded were laid inside the locomotive, while the rest of the men were forced to run alongside the engine as it moved off to the south. Churchill was in the rear pushing men on, realising that some had fallen back he had jumped off the locomotive and was jogging behind. It was at that moment he was shot in the hand. He tried to climb out of the line onto an embankment, clutching his bleeding hand to his chest, then realised that the men who'd come to cajole forward had surrendered. That's when he ran straight into a boer on a horse and threw up his arms. He said later it was Louis Butter himself who was on the horse, but this is debatable. After which the future British Prime Minister and hero of the Second World War was forced to walk back part of the way to his prison in Pretoria from south of Ladysmith. When Redverse Buller heard what had happened to Churchill and the others, he called it inconceivable stupidity. Churchill had been as bumptious as he was reported. The prisoners were ushered through the beautiful but deceptive landscape of South Africa, walking part of the 400-kilometre journey back to Pretoria. A march of shame. Churchill said later he had almost come to like the Boers as he travelled to his prison. They bandaged his hand, giving him coffee and cigars, and he wrote, They were not cruel men, these enemy. Surprised and having expected humiliation at best, and perhaps torture and brutalisation at worst. But in Pretoria, that perception changed. He described the animosity and the scent of corruption as civilians sought to profit from the war in the Boer capital. The Boer soldiers were very different from the Boer charlatans and politicians. It's always those who lurk at a distance from where the sharp end of war is being fought to are the most corrupt, the most opportunistic, and in this war it was no different. A battery of cameras recorded their shame, photos which showed Churchill and others peering suspiciously back. It was humiliating for a man whose father was a peer, a member of the British Empire. The Zarps, or Zed Afrikaanse Belisi, were now his guards, and he truly now began to hate his enemy. This police force was also to evolve into the equally hated apartheid police, but that's another story. Churchill asked his friend, Captain Halden, who'd also been captured at the derailed train, to convince the Boers that he should be treated as an officer, and he lived in reasonably comfortable quarters while the rank and file over 2,000 British prisoners lived outside at a local racecourse. And it is with the sense of history and irony that at that precise moment, Denise Reitz, who we've been following, had also been given some time for rest and recreation, R&R, and had returned to Pretoria. His father was a state minister who had been tasked with administering the prisoners, and he visited one of the state schools where the British officers were confined. One of the prisoners asked for an interview, and Reitz writes, His name was Winston Churchill, a son of Lord Randolph Churchill, of whom I had often heard. He said he was a non-combatant but a war correspondent, and asked to be released on that account. My father, however, replied that he was carrying a Morza pistol when taken and must remain where he was. Winston Churchill said that all war correspondents in the Sudan carried weapons for self-protection, and the comparison annoyed my father, who told him Boers were not in the habit of killing non-combatants. Winston was not to be released. He could be a valuable tool in the coming negotiations, whenever they were to begin. I need to talk a little about what happened before Churchill's capture, concentrating on Boer decision-making. By the second week of November 1899, the majority of their forces were laying siege to Ladysmith, but many voices within the army were calling for some sort of push into Natal. Piet Joubert, or General Marula, as our Denise Reitz called him, was the commander of the Transvaal army. He was similar in temperament to General Buller, the commander of the British army. Indecisive, 
depressed. General Yobeh was both tired and ill. There was insurrection in the ranks. As Reitz had described, many men began a whispering campaign against their own leader. Some Boers wanted to drop everything and ride to Durban. Some wanted to remain in Ladysmith. While they'd taken a vote to remain and besiege the town, it wasn't that simple. Yet, they say, when there's a crisis, strong men and women emerge. And one of the strong Boer men to emerge here was Louis Butter. While President Paul Kruger remains steadfast in his belief in the defensive strategy, Butter was different. Kruger wanted to block the British attack. Butter and the others wanted to attack the British and let them try to block. As with chess, the player with the initiative determines the eventual outcome. But let's step back and carefully assess what Kruger and the defensive tacticians were planning. When you realise what they were up to, the chance of success was quite high, at least on paper. Their defensive-offensive strategy was to get the strongest part of the British Army Corps to attack, then deal the strong force a terrible defeat. It's what happened to the Germans at the Battle of Kursk in Russia in the Second World War, as the Russians lured the Reich into a fatal trap. The military strategy would be recognised by anyone involved even in corporate strategy, let alone the army. General White and his 12,000 men were bottled up in Ladysmith. Baden-Powell was surrounded in Mafeking, and the god-awful roads were shut down in Kimberley. Kruger and his generals knew the British would then have to split their force to relieve Ladysmith and march up the railway line to Pretoria. How brilliantly simple, and how accurate. But because you know what the enemy will do, doesn't automatically mean you will defeat that enemy. Well, the numbers were also starting to mount for the Boers. More than 600 dead, wounded or captured. The morale was linked inexorably to the treatment of women and the isolated farms they'd left inland. Yobeir had problems. His men were homesick. They were used to their lives and women and children. And because the army he'd gathered was ostensibly a guerrilla army, they were imbued with individual beliefs, the antithesis of a disciplined national army. They also began hearing the stories of how the international mercenaries from America, Italy, Holland, Portugal, Germany and other mainly European countries were abusing civilians back home as they scrounged for food. General Yobeir was weighing up a direct assault on Ladysmith, but knew that the result would be extremely destructive to both forces and wasn't ready to commit his men to an assault that could theoretically kill at least a third of his 8,000 men. At this point, the Free State Commander had decided to hold their own council of war, independent of the Transvaal Boers, and Martinus Prinsler, who is in charge of the Free Staters, told Joubert his men would never attack Natal, it was just too dangerous. Eventually, Joubert made a momentous decision that would impact his own life. He would ride south, taking 1,500 Transvaalers and around 500 Free Staters, who ignored their own commander, by the way. The road south of the Chigella River on Monday, 13th November, two days before Churchill was captured. And alongside Joubert was Louis Boerter, future South African Prime Minister. He was the driving force behind the decision to raid Southern Natal. 37 years old, Boerter's pedigree was pure Boer. He was a successful farmer, crack horseman, but no politician. In fact, if Buller had met Boerter at this point, both would have had more to say to each other than to their own political leadership. So Boerter and Joubert and around 2,000 men rode south of the Tugela towards a place called Shivli. It was thus Boerter's men who captured Churchill. Buller was fuming when he heard about Churchill, and fumed more when he realised what Colonel Long had allowed. Instead of defending the very strategic and important small bridge at Colenso, his force had scuttled back to Estcourt. Furthermore, Colonel Long had exacerbated the situation by sending his armoured train along a track without the usual cavalry escort securing the hills. 
As Thomas Pakenham writes, that was a parody of the act of modern war. Imprisoned by the railway line, the Boers could pick off the train at a variety of points. It was equivalent to sending a ship into battle with its rudder jammed. And Boerter, who led his men, must have rubbed his eyes in surprise when he saw the meaty train. So from the Boers' point of view, they rode to a river called the Blaukrantz, or Blue Cliff, where the railway line swung to the right and then climbed a rise. That's where Boerter placed his 500 men from the Wackerström and Krugersdorp commandos, and a rock on the track. And we know what happened next. After the battle, Boerter cabled Pretoria. Our guns were ready and quickly punctured the armoured tracks. Stop. The engine broke loose and returned badly damaged. Stop. Loss of enemy 4 dead, 14 wounded, 58 taken prisoner. Our loss, 4 slightly wounded, blood visible everywhere. Much rain. Stop. Am in good health. Stop. Publish. Stop. Greetings. Stop. Boerter and Joubert continued their ride south, taking a wide detour around Escort, where they knew the British were holed up. Colonel Long, who was in Escort, then cabled London to say there were at least 7,000 Boers who defeated them at Chivli, many with cannon, that was a hopeless exaggeration, and furthermore, they were on their way to Durban. Well, both sides suffered from incomplete intelligence. And as all those who've experienced war know, the fear of the unknown drives a mysterious form of mythology about your enemy. The Boers at this point were beginning to take on the mystique of superhumans from the felt. Joubert and Boerter had managed to slip between a large group of Buller's vanguard, two brigades led by Major General Hildjid and Barton. There were 9,700 men in those two brigades in total with 24 cannon a significantly larger force than the 2,000 of Joubert and Boerter. The Boers now had control of the railway line just north of Estcourt at a place called Willow Grange. The British attacked the Boers there on the night of 22nd November after it had rained for most of the preceding days. But Africa's violent thunderstorms once again affected this action, for the tempest caused the entire attack to be broken off. No Boers died by bullet or shrapnel. Lightning, however, killed one of the Transvaal commando and six horses. The British, however, were not let off lightly, suffering 86 casualties, including Percy Fitzpatrick's brother George, who was shot while serving with the Imperial Light Horse Cavalry and died. Boerter said later that at this point he suggested striking towards Durban, saying he would come and eat bananas. He said that later, of course, but that's apparently what he was thinking, until an incident changed everything. General Joubert's horse threw him, and the leaders suffered terrible internal injuries, from which he never recovered. Joubert was placed in a wagon, and the decision was taken to withdraw back north of the Tugela, along with thousands of head of cattle and horses that the Boers had looted. Then they began to lay trenches and prepare north of the Tugela, waiting for the inevitable British counterattack that should follow. And to do this, the Boers press-ganged thousands of black South Africans to work as slaves, basically, doing the physical labour, digging 30 kilometres of rifle and machine gun pits and trenches, dozens of dummy trenches, and stacking boulders along terraces, as well as rolling out barbed wire. It was a line of defence that was echoed later in World War I in 1914 with its machine gun nests, hidden trenches, barbed wire and extreme concentrations of fire emanating from magazine-loaded rifles. Some of these trenches north of the Tugela are still there to this day. 
Defending these defensive structures would be 5,000 riflemen, 10 field guns, and a number of Maxim guns, or what were known as pom-poms. The terrible battles that lie in the future will attest to the Boers' planning, for in many instances the British army marched straight towards trenches less than 100 metres away without realising they were there. Well, Pretoria schoolgirl Frieda Schlossberg kept an enigmatic diary through the Boer War. We've heard from her regularly. Now she writes, 60 prisoners taken when the armoured train was wrecked near escort, including this Mr Churchill, arrived in Pretoria at noon yesterday. Nobody was at the station to notice their arrival. The general situation is splendid and hopeful for the Boers. Besieged Mafia King, Kimberley and Ladysmith are expected to surrender soon. But they didn't. And in the Cape, as we heard at the beginning of this podcast, Methuen's force of 6,000 men were on the move. Kimberley was only 140 kilometres north of Methuen on the Orange River. Many believed the lifting of the siege was only a matter of days away. So we'll end here. Next week we'll hear what is happening in Kimberley where Rhodes, as Pakenham writes dramatically, was baying like an ass. Join me then for episode 8 and please don't forget to rate this podcast so that the folks at iTunes in the US start featuring this South African story and please follow the conversation on Twitter at Des Latham. Goodbye. Daar onderin die mil is by die groen door een